All right, well, welcome. I'm glad, uh, glad you're here. We're going to be in God's Word here today. So we are going to be in Galatians chapter 5. Doug had covered chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. I'm going to be going through 19 through 26. And really, 16 through 26 is a uh, whole one whole section here. So I'm gonna. There's gonna be a bit of an overlap. I'm gonna start in 16 and do a little bit in there. Um, so I'll start with 16 here. So Galatians 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Verse 17, for the desire of the flesh is against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, in order to keep you from doing whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, strife. Jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this, things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22, but the spirit, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let's not become boastful, challenging one another, and envying one another. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we just uh, thank you for this time of worship, Lord. That um, we can delve into your word, Lord. I just pray that each and every one of us has uh, hearts ready to receive the wisdom of your word, Lord, that we may internalize its truths and that we would ultimately apply these things to our lives, Lord. And we do these things for your glory, Lord. All honor, glory belong to you. We praise you at this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so this uh, this text here really gets to the heart of the Christian life as it pertains to our sanctification, and I think it helps us understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit as well. And the key to this text is found in uh, verse 16 where it says, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And if you look that this uh, whole entire section here is bracketed both the beginning and the end with the same command. You see the same command also in verse 25. And as you know, if you've been walking with the Lord for some time, you know that this is not an uh, easy task. This is a very challenging task. Uh, as Doug had explained the last time that we gathered, he spoke of the conflict that we have within ourselves. And the recognition of that conflict is found in verse 17 where there is a war that's raging. It's being waged. It's raging within each and every one of us. And each and every one of us is dealing with the same conflict, the same war. 
And that's the battle between the flesh and the Spirit. The Spirit sets itself against the flesh, the flesh against the Spirit. And when I say the flesh, the flesh meaning that's our unredeemed humanness. That's the result of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. That's our unredeemed humanness. So even though we've been justified in Christ, we've been born again, we've been made a new creation, we have a new nature, we've been given the Spirit of God, we have desires to honor the Lord, to do good works, to please Him in every respect, we still have the flesh. However, it does not have dominion over us. Nevertheless, the sinful desires, the sinful desires are still there. <clears throat> and we have the propensity uh, within ourselves to carry out the works of the flesh because we've not yet been glorified. This is why we groan within ourselves, waiting for the redemption of this body. Thomas Watson gives us quote, he says, Saving faith lives in a broken heart. It always grows a heart humbled by sin and a weeping eye and a, tear, and a tearful conscience. That signifies the battle that we have between the Spirit and the flesh. And so in this section of Scripture, it's connected really to Paul's argument throughout this whole epistle in Galatians where he tells the Galatians, you, you don't want to go back to the law. You don't want to go back to uh, rituals, to observing rules, ceremonies. And the reason why is because human effort does not restrain the flesh. Human effort in no way can restrain the flesh. In fact, it actually does the opposite. If we look in Romans 7, the law actually exasperates the flesh. It arouses the sinful passions within us. And Paul in Romans 7 and 8, he says that when he had learned the commandment not to covet, sin within him produced every kind of coveting. So we know this. Talk, Bill's talked about this before, that the law actually arouses the sinful passions in us. I remember one time I was walking with Stephanie along, um, it was over in John Bryan, and we came up across a ledge, and it says, no rock climbing. Suddenly, I felt the urge to rock climb. And I don't even like rock climbing. But somehow I had the urge to do that. But I think we can all give examples that, uh, that this, this section of Scripture is very much true in our lives. So Paul is uh, very straightforward. He says the only way to overcome the fleshly desires is to receive a supernatural power. It's not a power that's within us, it's a power that's outside of us. And of course, that's the Spirit of God. And it's working by the Spirit that's the only way that we can overcome the flesh here. And as it pertains to our sanctification, this serves two functions. Walking by the Spirit. One, it restrains the flesh. You know, the Spirit sets itself against, against the flesh. And number two, it empowers us to produce spiritual fruit. It empowers us to produce spiritual fruit. And this is what God desires for our lives. Christ says in John fifteen eight, 
my Father is glorified in that you bear much fruit. So prove to be my disciples. Prove to be my disciples. So walking by the Spirit, how is this achieved? All we need to do is look at Christ. We need to look at Christ. Christ is the great model here of our of our sanctification. We see numerous times that Christ speaks of His perfect obedience to the Father. And of course, He did this in the power of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah chapter 11 says that the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon Him. And it's this same Spirit that takes residency also in our lives. The Spirit is the power. And this power gives us the ability to please God. However, I want to say this, that the Spirit is not going to move us in the direction that we're ignorant. The Spirit is not going to move us in a direction where we're ignorant. We must be informed by God's Word. And it's God's Word that we know what His will is for our life. And Jesus said in His prayer for the, for the apostles and all the saints that would follow in John 17 and 17, it says, He says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. God's Word is the means by which our sanctification comes. The power is in the Holy Spirit. And we look at this command in verse 16 where it says, walk by the Spirit. This is a command. It's not passive in any way. Now, I know that seems like a paradox because the work itself is a work of the Spirit in us. Yet, at the same time, it's given to us as a command. There's two parallel passages here. Along with this command of walking in the Spirit, we see it in Galatians 5 and 18 where he says, Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, which means let the Holy Spirit control your lives. Right? The other parallel passage is found in Colossians 3.16 where it says, let the Word of God dwell within your hearts. These are all parallel passages here and they're all commands as well. It's something that requires intentionality. It requires effort. It requires consistency. And it's accomplished, as it says here, by a walk. It's one step at a time. It's gradual living in obedience by the power of the Spirit as we grow in the grace and knowledge of God. So we get to verses 19 through 26 here. This essentially is the contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. The works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. So Paul explains here in verses 19 and 20 that these are the things that the flesh produces. And the flesh only produces these things. Charles Spurgeon, I was looking at um, his commentary on this. The, when we look at these, the works of the flesh here, he identifies them in four categories. And I, I found it was helpful. The, uh, the first category, he says, uh, is the sin of lust. Um, which would be characterized as immorality, impurity, sensuality. The second here, he would uh, characterize as sins that would defile one's relationship to God, referring to idolatry and sorcery. And the third would be sins of the temper, 
Or we could say things that, sins that would corrupt our relationship with others. Uh, specifically hostility, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. And the fourth uh, would be the sins of excess, the sins of the appetite. And we look at drunkenness also in carousing. Now, I'm not going to go into very much detail. I'm just going to go through each one of these pretty quickly, uh, just for the sake of time, and and just quickly define them. Some of these are very just self-evident, self-explanatory, just by the word itself. So so I'll just go through a list of all these here and just quickly mention each one of these. So the first thing, immorality, which is referring to any kind of illicit sexual behavior, We're talking about adultery, fornication, homosexuality, bestiality, prostitution, pedophilia. Really, when you look at it, it's any kind of sexual activity outside the bounds of marriage. Any kind of sexual activity outside the bounds of marriage. The next thing, impurity, um, which really is referring to uncleanliness, it's really not different than immorality, but you could see it more in a broader sense. Uh, and it refers to uncleanness as it manifests not just in behavior, but also in word and thought, too. And then sensuality. That word sensuality means without restraint, especially in sexual behavior. So it refers to any sexual indulgences that would be done without shame, without any concern uh, or, of, uh, or others, uh, or not even care of how one would be affected by that. So it's complete without restraint as it pertains to sexual behavior. And as far as sins pertaining to our relationship with God, idolatry, worship of anything other than God, giving our admiration, our reverence to anything that in the place, we put something in the place where God should be in our hearts. And then the word sorcery here uh, refers to, I found this interesting, it found, refers to drugs. Many of you probably already know this. Uh, drugs were a big part of pagan worship, and this was something that, uh, in pagan worship, that was considered, drugs were considered the gateway uh, in which you would be connected to the gods. So it's something that was used very widely in religious worship ceremonies. And also as it pertains to sins corrupt, that corrupt the relationship with others, uh, we have hostilities, which is just antagonism towards others, strife, uh, jealousy, having a spirit that cannot be content with what it has, but also looks negatively uh, towards others. Uh, of whom God has given blessing to, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, which just means the desire of personal gratification, self-fulfillment, no matter what the cost. Dissensions, factions, I think of Titus 3 about a factious man, somebody who is self-willed, somebody who is prideful, who has a desire to cause divisions uh, within the church. And then, of course, envy, which goes farther than just jealousy. It just doesn't mean wanting what the other person has, but also resenting the person for having it. 
And it was this attitude that led Cain to murder Abel. And so also the sins of the appetite, we have drunkenness, uh, carousing. That's pretty self-explanatory there. But the, the point behind all this is, is this is what the flesh produces. This is the only thing that the f- flesh produces. Now I would say this, that not everyone has an issue with everything mentioned in here. Somebody may have an issue with outbursts of anger, but may not have the desire to touch a drop of alcohol. Uh, So it's one of those things where you can kind of pick whatever sin you you choose based on your desire. And all this is, is it's a representative list. This is not an exhaustive list at all. Uh, Because if you look at verse 21, it says, in things like these. Again, it's just a representative list. He says, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, bottom line, it's impossible to please God in the flesh. You see how this corresponds to Paul's overall argument here that we're justified by faith alone. By faith alone, we receive the Spirit of Christ, and this is the only way, living out the Spirit, walking by the Spirit is the only way in which we can please God. There's no possible way that we can do that in the flesh. <clears throat> and so, moving on to verse 22, he says, But, but the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, and so, before I want to, I'm going to spend a lot of my time focusing in on each one of these um, qualities here as it pertains to the fruit of the Spirit. But the first thing I want to do, I want to give you a couple insights here as it pertains to this. First thing here is that when it says the fruit of the Spirit, you notice here, in contrast to the works of the flesh, works of the flesh, those are acts. We could pick whatever sin we want to commit on any particular day. right? The fruit of the Spirit, as it says here, notice that it's singular. You can look at it this way, that it's one fruit with many qualities. One fruit with many qualities. So what this means is, is if you are a believer, you are going to manifest every one of these qualities in your life. If you're a believer, you're going to manifest every single one of these in your life. And number two, I want, to, I want to say this as well, that every one of these virtues mentioned here is a characteristic of God Himself. And are only produced in our lives through His Spirit. Now I do want to say this, that there is a level of human goodness in the world. There is a worldly kind of love of joy, of peace. But at best, it's only superficial. It's superficial and it's fickle. It's subject to change. And it often does change. And they are only weak imitations of the real thing. It nowhere rises to the level of goodness produced by the Holy Spirit. Because this is something that the world cannot understand. It's inexplicable by the world. Why is that? 
because they are completely devoid of the Spirit. They cannot understand it because they don't have the Spirit. So with those two things said, I want to go into each one of these here. The first thing is love. Love comes first because, as Paul puts it, love is the greatest thing. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. Love is the foremost. Love is what fulfills all the commandments. And as one uh, unnamed uh, commentator put it, he says, love is the fountainhead and wellspring of all other virtues. thought that was good. Love is the fountainhead and wellspring of all other virtues. This is God's love. This is agape love. As you've heard Bill mention and explain in other sermons, this is the most noble kind of love. And if you remember how Bill characterized this kind of love, there's two things. One, it's sacrificial. And the other is that it's a determined act of the will that seeks the best for others. It's a determined act of the will that seeks the best for others, and it's sacrificial. And this is something that must be present in our lives. Because apart from love, everything else is meaningless. D.L. Moody said this, he said, there is no one, there is no use trying to do church without love. A doctor a lawyer may do good work without love, but God's work cannot be done without love. And I think 1 Corinthians 13, 1-5 through 5 highlights this very well. I found this, is, it's, it, was, it was striking to me. These first five verses, and I know it's, it's probably familiar to you as well, but I want to just quickly mention it here. Paul mentions five things. I could speak in the tongues of men, I can have the gift of prophecy. I can have all faith. I can have all possessions to the poor. I can surrender my body to be burned. But if all this is done without love, it's meaningless. It's nothing. That's a striking statement right there. There's a book that I read. It's called Leading with Love, and I think some of you other may have read it as well. The very first chapter in there talks about these first five verses. And I love the heading on there. It says it was the love equation, which was 5 minus 1 equals 0. 5 minus 1 equals 0. So that's to rattle some of you math wizards in here. But I just thought that was, that was good. But this is the kind of love that should be manifest in our life. And it's not just action, it's attitude as well. If you notice here, he says, I can give all my money to the poor. But if you do it without without the right motive, without the right attitude, that means nothing. means absolutely nothing. You can do a lot of wonderful things, but if it's done without the right heart attitude, it means absolutely nothing. And so the second one here, joy. Joy is this uh, inner gladness. And it's a gladness that's not based on any circumstance but it's based on spiritual realities. It's something that's absolutely immovable. It doesn't go away when you have trouble in your life. And the reason why is because it's God's joy. It's God's joy. He has given us His joy. 
Listen to this. John 15, verse 11. Jesus speaking to His disciples. He says, These things I have spoken to you so that My joy may be in you and that your joy will be made full. We possess the same joy that Christ has. And this is made possible by abiding in Him. The basis of Christ's joy in the Father was that He abided in the Father. When we abide in Christ, we experience the same kind of joy. And it's a joy based on unchanging promises of God. Listen to this. 1 Peter 1, chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So this joy here is connected is connected to salvation. This is why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 6, chapter 6, verse 10, he said that he was sorrowful, but yet always rejoicing. We look at see how much suffering Paul experienced, but yet at the same time he's joyful because he has an inner gladness that nobody can strip from him. He could, because he knew that no matter what happened to him in his life, that his salvation would not be affected at all. Also look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. And it says, speaking of Christ, it says, And it was for joy set before him that he endured the cross. Well, wait a minute. Isaiah 53 says that he was a man of sorrows. Right? A man of sorrows, yet he went to the cross with joy. He was a model for joy. And it was this kind of joy, it's this kind of joy that helps us endure when we experience suffering ourselves. Right? The third thing, peace. Peace would be defined as a calmness. uh, Or you could say a calmness in our soul. We know that God is identified as a God, as the God of peace. He Himself is perfect peace. He doesn't experience fear. He doesn't become anxious in any way. No doubts. But there's perfect calm in Him because He is in complete control. Now recently, Bill had spoke a sermon on, on peace. Um, in John, where he speaks about my peace that I give you, he spoke about objective peace, also subjective peace. Objective peace referring to our relationship with God. Knowing that we were once at war with Him, now reconciled by the blood of Christ, we have peace with God, right? So we have to have peace with God before we receive the peace of God. And so Christ says to the disciples here in John 14.27, he says, My peace I leave with you. They've been reconciled. He says, My peace I leave with you. Because it's only because of the work of Christ that we are reconciled. We are now at peace with God. Now we receive the peace of God. 
In Second Thessalonians 3.16, it says, Now may the Lord of peace Himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. This is the subjective peace that Bill had spoke about. This peace does not go away despite hard circumstances. It's the peace that eliminates all doubt, anxiety, worry, fear, because, again, it's built on the strong confidence of the promises of God and the power of His unchanging nature. So we see a correlation here between joy and peace in that these things aren't based on any kind of circumstances that we have in our life. It's built, it's based on the unchanging nature of God, on the promises of God, being informed of His Word, being reconciled uh, to Christ. These are the things that we rest upon when we experience trials. In Philippians 4 here, it says, uh, it speaks here of the peace of God guarding our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That peace guards us. It guards us when we're vulnerable when tragedy strikes, right? Because we're steadfast. Isaiah 26.3 says, And you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. And this is a peace also that will manifest in our relationships with one another. Blessed are the peacemakers in Matthew 5. Romans 12.18, if possible, he says, as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. We receive that peace from God. We will be a peacemaker. It's going to manifest in our relationships with others. The next thing here, patience. We can look at patience here in two ways. You can see patience under trials, but also patience as, it, as uh, we're dealing with others. And this is what it's referring to here. It's peace. It speaks about being patient with others. I think it could be best, uh, better translated long-suffering. In some translations, it is long-suffering or slow to anger. Uh, as one commentator says, it says restraint. He says restraint that does not retaliate. And the assumption here is that there's been an offense that's been committed against you here. And as we see, it's going to be closely related to forgiveness here. Colossians 3, 12 and 13, it says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against uh, anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so you must do also. This is connected to forgiveness. Assuming here that there's been an offense. And so when we act this way, being ready to forgive, we endure offenses and we have a heart that's ready to forgive. When we act this way, we are being Christ-like. When Paul spoke in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, this is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners among who I am foremost. He wasn't exaggerating there. He was the worst of the bunch, right? He was, we can't get worse than being a murderer of Christians. 
Yet, he says, for this reason, I found mercy. So that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience. His perfect patience as an example of those who would believe in him for eternal life. So we have patience or long-suffering. The next one, kindness. And kindness, patience, um, even gentleness here, these are all kind of, there's an overlap with all of these right here. It's very close in character. Kindness is very close to character and patience and gentleness. It could be translated tenderheartedness, having a gracious disposition to others. And again, this is a character of God Himself. Romans 2 speaks of the kindness of God leading men to repentance. So as believers, we ought to be known for our kindness. Our kindness. In 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Titus 3 and 2 also speaks of the same thing, referring to kindness. Slander no one, do not be contentious, be gentle, showing consideration for all people. Consideration for all people. And so the next one here, goodness. And goodness has a lot to do with righteousness, but it's righteousness, not necessarily righteousness in the sense that you're holding firm to your convictions. But it's specifically with the uh, it's righteousness specifically for the benefit of others in mind. Okay, this also is a character of God. And when you talk about goodness, a lot of times when you look at scripture, goodness and righteousness are both connected. They're both spoken of uh, in, in the same verse. Uh, one example here is Ephesians five nine. It says, "For the fruit of the light." the divine light, referring to Christ Himself, consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And this goodness is what brings mercy to bear on others. And uh, this should be manifested also in our lives as well. The next thing, faithfulness. Faithfulness. This is speaking truth. This is honesty, truthfulness, trustworthiness, being loyal uh, to your word. This also is a characteristic of God, attribute of God. In 1 Corinthians 1.9 it says, God is faithful. In Lamentations 3.22 it says that great is your faithfulness. Right? For us it's absolutely essential that we speak truth to one another, right? Uh, pertaining to my job as a, as a uh, police officer, there's a lot, whole lot of things you can do and not get fired. But there's one thing that you could do that absolutely will get you fired immediately, and that's lying. Because if I ever go on the stand and I testify, I know the first question that's going to be asked to me is, have you ever lied during an investigation? If the answer to that is yes... The next question is, well, how do we believe what you're saying now? Which is a valid point, right? That damages your testimony. 
It's the same thing as a Christian witness, right? It's going to damage our witness as a Christian as well. It's going to damage our fellowship with one another, and it damages our Christian witness as well. The eighth thing here, gentleness. Gentleness. This could be better translated uh, meekness or humility. Uh, Humility here by its nature um, is gentle. So um, those two words are interchangeable here. And it's, you know, humility that must be present in our life for, for love to flourish. That's why Philippians 2, it speaks about humility. Regarding one another is more important than yourselves, right? That's so that love can flourish in the fellowship. Love is not possible without humility. The opposite of humility is pride. And pride is what destroys a relationship. Humility must be present for love to flourish. Right? And humility here first manifests itself in a submission to God and His Word. James one twenty one says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the Word implanted. In humility. It starts first with being humble, humbling ourselves before the Lord in submission to Him. And it also manifests as gentleness towards others. And the example is in Philippians chapter 2 there. And it also should be evident as we share the gospel with others too, right? First Peter chapter 3 verse 15, it says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But, to do, but do this, it says, with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. And so the last thing here, self-control, which just means the power to restrain oneself. Um, I think this is most evident as Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians nine twenty-seven. He says, but I strictly discipline my body and make it a slave so that, I, uh, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. This also is a characteristic of God. And so, verse 23 here, it says, In such things there is no law. Such things there is no law. That's because it satisfies all the demands of the moral law. In fact, it's a higher standard. The fruit of the Spirit is a higher standard. Right? Um, And now those, it says in verse 24, And now those who belong to Christ Jesus crucify the flesh with its passions and its desires. Yes, the flesh is still there, but it's been crucified at salvation, meaning that it no longer has dominion over us anymore, no longer has control of us anymore. It's not in charge. And so moving here, verse 25, it says, and if we live by the Spirit, again, this is the end command at the bracketed here at the end. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let's not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another either. So why do all these things? We do all these things 
for the glory of Christ, right? So that the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified in us. Look at Second Thessalonians here. Chapter 1, and I'm going to go through 11 and 12. But here's, it says that, To this end also we pray for you always that our God will consider you wor- worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness in the work of faith with power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in Him in accordance with the grace of our God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, that's all I got. We go there at the end of the chapter. Next time we'll be in chapter 6, beginning in chapter 6 here. So, I hope you find this encouraging. I found it convicting on one hand because, you know, I don't live up to these things. <laughs> But encouraging on the other end in that if you see these things in your life, that's an encouragement that the Spirit of God is within us, right? And he who began a perfect work will complete it, right? Till the day of Christ. So that should be a tremendous encouragement to as well, right? Convicting, but yet encouraging as well too. So, all right, let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you again for this day. Thank you for the word that you've spoken to us, Lord. Thank you for the wisdom that it provides. Lord, thank you for... The work of Christ, Lord, that we have been given a great salvation, Lord. And Lord, that uh, we thank you that you don't leave us to ourselves, Lord, but you have placed your spirit within each and every one of us, Lord. That we may uh, mortify the deeds of the flesh uh, by overcoming it with uh, the power of the spirit, Lord, informed by your word, which is the means, Lord. I pray that... um, We just fulfill the uh, graces, we apply the graces that you have given to us, Lord, to help us in that striving, that struggle, Lord, um, through prayer, through uh, fellowship, Christian fellowship, also with uh, your word as well, Lord, um, to sanctify us, Lord. Lord, again, I just thank you for this time. I just pray that uh, each and one of us, uh, each and every one of us, that we would apply these truths to our lives, Lord, for the sole purpose to give you honor in all things, Lord. We just praise you at this time in Jesus' name. Amen.